Welcome to the Tennis Addict Podcast, the podcast for tennis fans by tennis fans. Listen as the hosts break down the latest news and tournament results from around the tennis world. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced early each week, so feel free to add us to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The links will be in the show notes. Here are your hosts, Mike, Eric, and Michael. Okay, welcome to back to another episode of the podcast. I'm with Eric. Unfortunately, Michael couldn't make it. I really wanted to be here, but uh, different, well, other duties came up. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, father, fatherly duties came up. Same thing that's been happening to me a little bit lately uh, with my son getting sick and whatnot. So he'll uh, be back for the next podcast for sure. Okay. All right. So we'll move on here and uh, we'll just start out with the first set. This will be a four-setter in this episode. Uh, set one, of course, as always, is going to be in the news. Before we get to that, we're going to get to an announcement. Uh, so the the March Tennis Addict Podcast Player Profile episode on Jennifer Capriotti uh, was recorded, but there was a serious issue with the audio that we discovered in post due to those circumstances. The episode will be re-recorded. Hopefully this week we can get it out. And uh, if we can get it recorded this week, it'll be out by the end of the week. The next episode of the series will be recorded this month and it'll be out before the month is out. So don't worry, we won't be bleeding into the next month. But unfortunately, you know, when we did record, you know, we had everything done and then, you know, the in post, it was just obvious that uh, we had to scrap it and start over, unfortunately, because no one likes to record for an hour only to find out that their audio, you know, was it was a malfunction and yeah, it wasn't usable. So, so, yep, that's it. So we'll get that re-recorded and get that out as soon as possible. All right, so let's move on to the news. Uh, so obviously, John Isner wins the Miami Masters 1000 tournament. Uh, the Bryan brothers. Uh, won the Miami Masters uh, 1000 tournament for their 115th title. So, Eric, that's a that's a big deal. You know, 115 titles. Wow, it's a big deal on a couple of fronts. Big deal because 115. Um, you know, they already own the record for most titles, and they just keep extending it. But also, it has been a while, a little bit of time since they've won, kind of like a major title, not a major. But a major title. They've been, you know, I say more or less, you know, funk the past couple of years. They're getting older. Uh, they're both fathers, things like that. So, I mean, it it was a nice, nice thing to have happen. Um, you know, for them to actually win. Hopefully, you know, good things to come because I, I do fear that they're going to retire this year, maybe next year. I don't really see them going um, going further than that, probably. Uh, so, I'm just hoping that they can use this and maybe you know, come back in the limelight and maybe grab one or two more uh, majors before before they hang it up, um, especially with the volatility in the men's uh, doubles game. Um, yeah, there is a lot. As of late, yeah, because, I mean, the, the top seeds, like you, you expect, have been crashing out early, things like that. So it's kind of like a ripe opportunity for them to kind of like do like a Roger and Rafa, step back into the limelight, you know, and do a little bit of dominating um, because you can see a little lull in the competition you know, shark blood and water type of deal. Hopefully that's what happens. Yeah, it is true. They, it's been a while. I don't know the exact amount of time it's been since they won a title like this. Obviously, I don't think they've won a major in a few years, I believe. So it's been a bit of a drought for them. 
So you're right. Hopefully, I'm thinking if they win any more slams, it's going to be maybe one more because uh, it's just, you know, look, they're in their late 30s now. You know, they're like, what, 38, I think. They'll be 38 this year. Uh, They're 39, 39. and they'll turn 40 on April 29th. Right. So they're actually going to turn 40 in in about three weeks. So they they won two titles last year. This is the first Mm -hmm. title of the year. They won Atlanta and Eastbourne. Mm -hmm. Now, I know Eastbourne is not pretty early, right? I mean, Eastbourne, I think, is – that's grass, right? Yeah, Yeah, it's grass. So it's about middle of the year. I don't remember when Atlanta is – um, that's later. That's uh, that's July. All right, so July. Yeah. So this is the first title they've won since July. They only won two titles last year. Um, you know, three in 2016, six in 2015, ten in 2014, right. eleven in 2013. So it's been like a downward spiral mm-hmm. um, since 2013, which is what they they've done eleven titles three times in 07, uh, 10, and 13. That's the most titles they've gotten in a, in a season. And then kind of from 13 on, it's just been a downward spiral. 11, 10, 6, 3, 2, 1. So hopefully, you know, they they take this and, and win a few more this year just because it's nice to see, uh, you know, older players come back. <laughs> it's It's been what's happening lately. So why not the Bryan brothers as well? Yeah, I think, you know, with doubles, it's a little different. Obviously, you can play a lot longer i mean there's players good great doubles players that have played well into their 40s even approaching 50 oh yeah um but you know changing priorities uh and obviously the brian brothers are a little different on this front just because they have played so much over their career i mean they've played 2001 so they right. started 2001 they won four titles that year at least that's when they started winning titles they could have played earlier than that um but yeah i mean you're, you're talking they turned pro in 98 okay so 20 years mm-hmm. um they didn't win an actual title um for three years they turned pro in 98 so they've been on the tour for 20 years and I, I, I do, it would not surprise me if they're hanging up this year. Then I did not realize it's been 20 years. Yeah, I think one of the brothers tried to do the singles for a while, and I think that eventually they, they abandoned that. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I don't know. I don't honestly don't remember which one it was, but uh, oh, it's, uh, it was Mike. Yeah, it was Mike that tried the singles out. Um, they've both had success in the mixed doubles, but Mike tried that out, and um, yeah, it just wasn't quite for him. Yeah. All right, moving on here. Uh, Novak Djokovic and Andre Agassi part ways after Djokovic's loss. Uh, we'll talk more about this uh, towards the end of the the episode here, so I don't want to get into much here, but obviously a big deal, you know, um, mm-hmm. because anytime yeah, you part ways as a head coach, it's not something that you do lightly, um, but we'll get to that later on. Um, let's see. Rafael Nadal has risen back atop the rankings after Roger Federer's early loss in Miami. So this, it kind of feels a bit anticlimactic because, you know, Nadal didn't even play. So he didn't play in either tournament and right. he, he benefited from, you know, Delpo knocking out Fed. So Fed lost, uh, 400 points in Indian Wells. And then he got knocked out here and, you know, he won last year. So it was a thousand. I don't know how many points he ended up with, but, you know, it was probably in the in the double, low double digits or so. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, he'd lost way more points than Nadal did. Yeah. So basically Nadal is back to number one because Roger couldn't match his success from last season after he won the Sunshine Double. Yep. So. Which, which now, you know, the tables can turn. Yeah. Nadal now has got the same thing. He's going to have to, you know, all of his points, most of his points came 
during the clay swing from last year. So you got to remember last year he wins Monte Carlo, Barcelona, Madrid, and Roland Garros. So Mm -hmm. there's 4,500 points in four tournaments that he's going to have to defend. And yeah, Roger's not, Roger's not playing until grass season, but guess what? It's only going to take a slip up. You know, if he doesn't make it to the finals of Roland Garros, maybe makes it to the semis, boom, you're losing 1,280 points right there. Yep. You know, he doesn't win Madrid. Madrid's not been his best clay. It's been the least one clay tournament, you know, so it can take minor slip ups. Um, maybe he doesn't play Barcelona this year and, you know, you're going to see Roger back on. But it's clear that it, it doesn't really matter to them, in my opinion. No. Getting it back is what, what counted. Mm-hmm. Roger, you know, Nadal got it. And yeah, he wants to stay it, but eh, it's not the most important thing. Roger just wanted to get it back, and now he's got it. So now he doesn't even set himself. It's not really a big of a deal now. It if was they just can, getting back to it. If they could stay in the top four, I think that's the biggest <clears throat> thing. So yeah, except for seating purposes, so they don't run into each other in in a, in a quarter instead of like a semis. Um, is yeah, staying in the in the top four is probably the main concern for them. Yeah. All right. So. Uh, as it's just a rumor at the moment, so take this with a grain of salt. Uh, I don't know if this probably is been, it's probably an April Fool's prank, so we'll find it's out. It's possible, it's possible, but there are reports that Yvonne Lendl may possibly take on the role of Alexander Zverev's coach. Uh, so Zverev split with Juan Carlos Ferrero on contentious terms after the Australian Open this year. Now, both of them cited the other's supposed unprofessionalism, I guess. Zverev states that uh, Carlos Ferrero uh, had said some very unsavory, you know, things to his family and uh, fellow coaches, I guess, and you know, obviously that's not going to sit well with any player. And I guess that uh, Ferrero kept saying, uh, Carl, one Carlos Ferrero was saying that he was late to well, late to his practices. You know, late. He was always like late. That was what. Uh-huh. One Carlos Ferreira said. So neither one of them are anything crazy, but it seems like like the personalities weren't really matching. So yeah. that's kind of like nitpicking, yeah. you know, per se. You're On one hand, it's like, all right, you, you need to be respectful of your coach. And if he was late, you know, own up to it. But then the other thing, if he's like, dude, if I'm late, I'm late. It's it's my, you know, I'm paying you to be my coach. So if I want to be late, I'm going to be late. You got to, you know, handle that as well, too. So it's kind of like a little bit of Nazverev's young, but it's kind of like a little bit of um, the old man and the youngin, you know, where they just don't see eye to eye in, in the respect versus what you know, whatever Zverev's talking about type of deal. That's kind of what I got out of it. It wasn't like, you know, he was, you know, really rude to him or was insulting him or this or that. It was they're, they're kind of like minor ish yeah. in my opinion well but, yeah i mean but, but i think carlos ferrera if, if carlos ferrera was saying things to his family and fellow coaches rude things like that's a little different because you know you got to show the family especially the family respect if if there's things going on there those need to be addressed but if your if your head coach is <clears throat> doing these things that that can be an issue um oh yeah and uh mikey uh, has some thoughts on this so you know he for Lendl becoming Zverev's coach, he thinks that this is an amazing option for Zverev. Really could take him to the next level and be a slam contender. Uh, you know, already has the game, just needs a little helpful of fine-tuning, in my opinion. That wasn't Mikey's words of fine-tuning. But, you know, we've seen Zverev win multiple Master Series last year. He's got the game. Mm-hmm. It's about stringing it together with the mental toughness. You know, yeah, he proved he can do, 
you know, Master Series, but a Grand Slam is an extra match. Um, you know, you don't have that first seat, that first round buy type of deal as well. So really like two matches, I guess you could say, um, I think. Uh, and, you know, he's just there. I'd put him as a dark horse in any Grand Slam basically right now that he could do it. He just needs to string it all together. Yeah, and I don't think this is actually a, a April Fool's joke because this was being talked about days ago. And Yeah, well, uh, I read a lot of news yesterday and I really had to take all of it with a grain of salt because I saw the one article that said about Nadal and Federer, you know, teaming up at Wimbledon. And I'm like, no, I just don't. I don't see that happen. It could happen, but I just don't, I don't see that think happening that's either. Happen. <laughs> I'm no. thinking that's the April Fool's joke as well. So I, it was really tough uh, reading through news on Sunday. Well, I mean, I know that, that Lendl was actually at Miami. So he was there watching Zavera's <clears throat> matches, you know. So that to me we'll is – it's an, it's an indication. Look, look, Lendl can show up to any place he wants to go. He's a, one of the all-time greats. But I, I, I see him going – if he's it watching, was like Agassi yeah. showing up and being somewhere in the vicinity of like Djokovic when that whole was like, is he going to, you know, you started seeing Agassi pop up mm-hmm. here and there. And it was, it's the same thing where I was like, all right, it's a little suspicious. So, yep. but we'll find out. I mean, yep. if we'll it's going to be announced, I'm sure it's going to be announced before the full clay court swing happens. Yep. All right. Uh, let's see. The Miami Masters 1000 tournament is moving from Crandon Park in Key Biscayne to the Hard Rock Stadium in 2019, so next year. Uh, uh, Michael said that Blake did an amazing job with the tournament and will in the future. Players really responded to him, which I totally agree. You know, I, I oh, yeah. And I think uh, there's an article about this that is uh, on, on the ATP <clears throat> World Tour. So I took a look at it because it has some really great information. And one of the things that they were talking about is that it's simply outgrown. Crandon yeah. Park. It, it's just it's it, yeah. too big. The, the, the parking is a nightmare. Yeah. People don't realize that. I mean, the nice thing about basically the only thing you're going to lose at Crandon Park, for those who've never been there, is the views. You're, you're literally, I mean, not a stone's throw, but you're right there, like the ocean. You can see the water in the distance. It's not very far. I mean, you're talking a half a mile, quarter mile, maybe. So, I mean, th- the views were insane, but it was never intended to be, you know, the size that it's it's growing yeah. to become. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, you know, they're they're aiming to bring, and this is from the website, from the article, they're aiming to bring an unparalleled fan experience uh, because they're going to have improved player amenities because this is um, this is the Miami Dolphins stadium, um, and Miami Dolphins under Steve Ross, uh, you know, they're working closely to develop the the event, um, but it's going to have bigger parking. Uh, so that way they can accommodate the extended fan base and they're not going to do anything like a U.S. Open, but they're planning on um, kind of creating for the event other attractions to it, like other things for for people to do. Kind of like, you know, when you go to the U.S. Open and you've got you can hit, hit tennis ball and see how fast you hit it and spin and things like that. They're, they're working on some ideas to help uh, grow the event even further. Yeah, which I think is really good. And I could see them. You know, expanding it because I think they're really competing with um, Indian Wells as, as like the quote unquote fifth slam that everyone you know talks about. It's more or less an honorary title. It basically just states how impressive you are as a tournament that you're in that sphere of you know mm. greatness and and everything. So I think they're they're trying to 
kind of build themselves up like that. And Indian Wells is so well regarded that, uh, you know, Miami's trying to basically do the same thing. So, which yeah, it's going to have uh, also just another tidbit just to give people an idea because I was reading this as I'm looking through. Uh, it's going to have the largest video screen for any tennis event anywhere. Which is so, pretty cool. They, they, yeah, they have a tennis oasis, so it's going to be huge. And it does have a, it's going to have a 14,000 seat stadium uh, within the Hard Rock. So it's going to be it's going to be up there with like Indian Wells is well regarded in how uh, the owners, you know, taken that and made it like a pinnacle, uh, a pinnacle tournament throughout the year. And I think the Miami open is looking to surpass it. Yeah. Well, that's their goal. That's which, what they're trying which to isn't a bad thing when you've got like the battle of the billionaires, mm-hmm. you know, who's going to one up each other. The only, the only person that who wins is, is us, the fans, yeah, especially if you go to the event, which, you know, now we're more interested to go in next year. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> as we've discussed. Yeah, we have we have actually discussed this. It's not set in stone, just in the early talks, but there's a possibility that we could be going to uh to Miami next year to uh watch, you know, some of the tournament and check out some matches and everything. So, you know, it's gonna be a while, but you know, stay tuned. If there's an official announcement, we'll let you know uh one way or another. All right, so let's move on to the WTA news. So of course, Sloane Stevens wins the Miami Masters 1000 tournament. Uh, great win for her. And again, we'll talk about, about her. time. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about her in a bit because there's a lot uh, going <clears throat> there on there. Um, with her win, Sloane breaks in the top 10 at number nine. So good. Congrats to her just on that account because she's never cracked the top 10 before. It's the first time. Um, Ashley Barty and Coco Vandeweghe win the the Masters 1000 in Miami there. The title, uh, so that's pretty great. Obviously, an American winning there. We have the the Bryan brothers winning on the men's side in the doubles. We have you know the women's doubles and uh, Coco being an American. I think Ashley Barty is Australian, so that's pretty fantastic news. I think uh, great win for them. And, and uh, before you before we go to the next part, yeah. there is another minor thing in the news here. I want to throw in. Is uh, Bethany Maddox Sands return to action? Oh, this great, week. great. Uh, yeah, she um, the Volvo car open that's going on right now. Unfortunately, she lost in the first match, uh, which not to be unexpected. I mean, her injury was pretty horrific. Uh, at Wimbledon last year, if anybody remembers, I think she was playing doubles or singles. I don't remember. Yeah, she was, she was playing, in doubles, but, I think. And I think, um, maybe no, no, it was singles, it singles. was singles because only, only the opponent was standing on the other side and didn't know what to do, right? Um, I think so, but yeah, anyway, so. Uh, her first match back, she did lose six two six two, but I mean, just the fact to see her on the court um, was nice, uh, and hopefully, you know, she gets back into into good form. And you know, she was uh, pretty good, not the singles much to contend, but you know, in recent years, the doubles. I mean, her and I don't remember her partner, but I mean, they've been doing. You know they were doing a lot of damage, winning a lot. So hopefully she gets back into you know good form, and you know we see things out of her again. Yeah, um, it's it's good to hear. Obviously, it's going to take a while. You know, oh yeah, it's it really it and uh, her because you're always going to be fearful of that movement. I mean that's the biggest thing. You, you know you're afraid you're going to you know stop and plant the foot to go for a ball the wrong way, and you're going to re-injure. You know so it's always in the back of your mind after a horrific injury because I've read it from multiple people. Um, that it, it's always there. It kind of never goes away. So you, you, you're a little bit slower. You sometimes second guessing and it affects your, your play because, you know, you used to play with reckless abandon. You just, you know, you need to stop on a dime and, and turn in the other direction. You just did it. You didn't have anything to worry about. Um, and now she's always going to. So, um, you know, I just hope 
Hope yeah. that good things come again. Well, uh, Lucy Safarova was her doubles partner, so hopefully was- they'll be back. And it's uh, good news, and I'm I'm excited for her. So congrats to to Bethany because that's a long road back. Oh, it's difficult. It's painful. Wait. I'm wrong. She lost at Miami. You know what? No one ever told me that because I saw her lose at Volvo Car Open. So I'm looking like the guy who doesn't really know what he's talking about. She actually did. She lost to Lise Cornet um, in the first round. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, at, yeah. At Miami. And I don't, I just, I completely missed that because I'm well, looking at it. Eric, and, Eric, the women are not your strong. Point. No, no, everybody <laughs> knows that. I don't look at the women a whole lot just because I don't have time to do like even my doubles in, in the moment. So, um, I just completely missed that. And Mikey would probably crucify me for not knowing that, but you know, he's not here to do so yet, but <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you the pass, Eric. All right. So, uh, Kachina Martinez, uh, to split with Garbine Muguruza, which actually it's already happened uh, following her Miami loss. Uh, the move was actually expected because she joined the team in February. It was a, a planned short-term run as, uh, I don't know what – not really a head coach, but she's a coach just to help assist. And uh, I guess – my guess is Garbina just probably thought that she felt more uh, comfortable if Conchita was there. So regardless of exactly why she was there and what her rule was specifically, you know, it was a short-term thing. So it's not like an acrimonious split or anything. So – but it is a you know it's news because Katrina Martinez is you know, a Hall of Famer and she helped I think Garbine actually get to you know her Wimbledon title last year so that was a a big deal. All right, um, let's uh, let's move on to set two and we'll do that now. Okay, so. Uh, this is Miami tournament results. Uh, we're going to do uh, some of the notable, ma- notable matches. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the men's side and then the women's side. Uh, so we'll do a rundown here of some of the things in the, the second week um, of the tournament. So Pablo Karina Busta defeated Kevin Anderson 6-4-5-7-7-6. Uh, a big win, Eric, for Pablo because he lost to Kevin Anderson by a very similar scoreline in Indian Wells. It came down to a tiebreaker in the third and Kevin mm-hmm. Anderson won that tiebreaker. So I think he was yeah. like eight, six, I think in the third for him. Yeah. It is definitely a big win too, because Prino Busta, you know, had a banner year last year uh, for him. I think yeah, I'm pretty sure he achieved the highest ranking yep. uh, that he's had. I mean, him and uh, it's kind of like a, a little, um, mini resurgence uh, from the uh, Spain, Spanish, because uh, it was him and, uh, oh God, of course, his, his brain, his name's leaving my brain, um, the younger uh, Spanish guy, not Crino Busta, but, um, come on, Mike, help me out here, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I can't remember his name. Um, I don't know. Um, oh, Roberto Batista Gut. Uh, uh, well, Pablo, uh, Albert Ramos, Vinolas, like they all, uh, yeah, Albert, you know, last year yeah. were were a lot higher um, than they are now. There was kind of like you know, and that was even before the clay swing. I think there were three of them, two of them in the top ten, like a third, like right outside it um, as well. Because yeah, Crino Boost is the younger at twenty six, but Ramos Vinolas um, also had a you know a, a good year. As well, so it was, uh, you know, for Crino Busta right now, it's gonna help him, um, because he was, uh, 
up to he, he jumped up seven spots from this tournament he was actually 19th mm-hmm. and as of today he's up to number 12 um big deal and you know with this he goes into you know like every spaniard a little bit of a strength um and he doesn't have a lot to uh he doesn't have a lot to defend i mean he only made um the round of 16 in monte carlos he's got 90 points there he did terrible at rome round of 32 and he lost in the first round of madrid so i mean we're talking and he doesn't play um well, he played Barcelona too, and also around the 16, only at 45 points. So, I mean, we're talking, he doesn't have a lot to defend right now. Uh-huh. He can make uh, some strides. You know, Monte Carlo, yeah, he's going to get to round 16, but he does a little bit better at Rome, Madrid, and Barcelona. Um, and he, we're talking, it's not, you know, hard for him to move up into the top 10. Yeah. I mean, right now, he's, like I said, number 12. He's only 15 points from number 11. Um, and then there is a big jump to get to the number 10. I mean, he's 800 points there, but it's not unheard of if he goes deep and maybe gets to the finals of one or two. Gofan, you know, is losing points because of, you know, his eye, um, you know, the issue with his eye. So he could definitely be a, a top 10 player before Roland Garros. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see here. Alexander Zvero defeats Nick Kyrgios 6464. Uh, routine. Win, I guess here the the scoreline pretty indicative of the the quality that Zverev displayed. Uh, you you see Zverev play like this against Nick, which is kind of scary at times because we know, well, we know how big Nick can play, but at times I feel like against Alexander, I he it's like he knows that he's playing against a future number one, so I don't know whether Nick kind of didn't feel like he was confident there but uh, obviously a big win for Alexander because you know facing Kyrgios it's always a scary proposition if especially if Kyrgios is out there and he's motivated all right uh Denis Shapovalov defeats Nick uh, or Nick sorry <laughs> let me say that again Denis Shapovalov defeats Sam Quarry 6-4-3-6-7-5 you know another I think one of the brightest spots on tour Shapovalov we know how big of a year he had last year in the back end uh, and Sam, always a tough out, especially over the last few years. And uh, Shapovalov found a way to come through, so good for him there. And, of course, John Isner defeating Juan Martin Del Potro, 6-1-7-6. You know, John came out of the gates in that match, Eric. He he was on top of, of Juan Martin right away. Oh, yeah. Um, and he needed to be. Uh, you've seen what happened with uh, Del Potro when, you know, he gets down, he's not out. You know, he fights harder, like we said, uh, right when he gets to the tail end, you know, he did it against Federer. So uh, it was pretty paramount that you you strike where the iron's hot, take the upper hand and try to put it away before he can find a way to claw back. Um, yeah. And I think that was the game plan and it showed. Um, and I, I think it shocked Del Potro. He wasn't ready for that type of aggressiveness from Isner. Because I'll be honest, I wasn't ready for that yeah, I, type we'll, of aggressiveness from Isner. And we'll talk more about that. I, I want to get into some things about Isner, which I have never seen before here in this tournament. Uh, all right. So actually, you know, given that, it's a nice segue into final talk. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a list of the players that each player had to go through to get to the final. So with John Isner, he got a first round bye. Then he had to play Jiri Vesely. Then moved on to Mikhail Yuzny, uh, defeated Marin Cilic. That was one that stunned me because uh, Cilic 
obviously made the final of Australia this year and in general has played pretty pretty great over the last you know three four years um uh, you have uh, Hyung Chung in the next round uh good run for Chung there and then of course defeated Del Potro to make it to the final Alexander on the other hand got a first round by took out fellow uh young up-and-comer Daniel Medvedev took out a resurgent David Ferrer of course took out Nick Kyrgios in the round after that Borna Chorich and then Pablo Carina Busta. So pretty good lineup, I think, for both guys to get through some some serious oh, yeah. firepower. There wasn't like one guy didn't go through a cakewalk and the other guy had to struggle, claw, and scrape his way to the final. It seemed like pretty solid on both sides with a couple of really scary propositions there. So like especially with uh I mean, I thought uh Chorich was gonna give Zverev a, a little Tougher time now. It was a six four six four, so you know it wasn't like a crushing. But I thought he had, you know, a good shot. But the fact that after I figured after Zverev beat Kyrgios in straight sets too, it was gonna be pretty tough uh, to take him out. Yeah, just because that that was definitely the hardest match of the tournament up until I honestly believe facing Isner. I don't think. Chorich or Karina Busta were nearly as hard as playing a Nick Kyrgios. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's move on to the final talk, Eric, here. So obviously, John Isner defeats Alexander Desverev, 6-7, 6-4, 6-4. Uh, and I, I watched this this whole match. I was excited for it. I couldn't wait because uh, you had – on one hand, you had an American and John. He's, he's been around for a while now. Uh, used to be the young young American, uh, finally uh, succeeded Roddick, but but now he's the elder statesman um, <clears throat> of the American crew, and of course he's still the top ranked American, especially after a run like this. But he's also thirty two, and a guy his size. Um, he'll be thirty three in a couple of weeks too. He's born three days before the Bryan brothers were, so right. So there you he'll go. He'll be thirty three. Right. So. Um, Let's talk about this match. So, um, did you get a chance to watch the final, Eric? I watched uh, the replay. Okay. Um, and it wasn't every point. It was kind of like the major points, and there were quite a bit of them. Um, so, from from what I got of it, uh, I'll, I'll say is uh, it was it was all John on the return, mm-hmm. uh, putting pressure on Zverev. I mean, it, it, the stat line says it point blank john only faced the which is normal for john though but john only faced three break points the entire match and saved all of them whereas vera faced 12 and saved 10 and that's that is not that's not a normal stat line for either it's not a normal stat line for Zverev to give up 12 breakpoint chances and it's not a normal stat line for isner to have that many breakpoint chances because let's be honest he's got a pretty good forehand but his aggressiveness that he carried over from del potro um, was was putting pressure on Zverev. I mean, they now do, just to give an example, uh, ratings, serve ratings, return ratings uh, mm-hmm. for the match. Um, serve ratings were pretty close. Isner was better at, at a 327, and they gave uh, Zverev a 291. However, it was all in the return game. Uh, Isner had a 96 return rating, and, and Zverev only had a 58. And we're talking, this is Zverev, who's got one of the best, one of the best two-handed returns 
I've seen. I mean, he can just thump it. And he only won 18% of first serve points and only won 40% of second serve return points. Um, that's not a normal game. That's not normal for Zverev. So from what I saw, uh, Isner just executed the game plan better. And Zverev, like Del Potro, which isn't surprise, surprising because he could have watched the video and saw his playing, but it seemed like he was surprised as well from how he was playing. Like tentative, you know, afraid to go for the shot sometimes, and it was costly. Okay, yeah. Um, Michael here, he put a little uh, note in here on the notes. He said, uh, what did John do? Because this is my next question. What did John do to win? Uh, serve big and be aggressive. That, that <clears> of course, is, was his key components to his game. Obviously, his serve is you know, El Numero Uno, and then being aggressive, aggressive on the return, obviously, but aggressive in general. Yeah, because um, he only had three breakpoint chances. That's that's shoring up his second serve. His second serves was was big because he was 60% second serve points one, and, and that's big when you're facing a good returner like Zverev. You know, you, you, can't, you can't let the second serve points number be a lot lower because you're going to lose. Yeah, they're going to string a few few first serve point uh, points one in a row. You're going to get a second serve, and before you know it, you're down fifteen forty, and you know they're going to get get the game. So, yeah, we see it with Djokovic all the time. Djokovic and Fed. That's that's what they do. Well, here's the thing that I noticed about John, and in this tournament in general, but certainly I think it's highlighted. You could certainly say it's highlighted in the Del Potro win, but I'm going to talk specifically about the final here. There's something that I noticed about John in this match and in this tournament, which is John, one of the, okay, let me start out this way. One of the problems with John in general has been, throughout his career, has been his demeanor. Uh, For the longest part of his career, he's always been a a guy that's well-liked in in the uh, locker room, well-liked in general, just a likable guy who's friendly with pretty much everybody on tour. He'll hit, he'll hit with anybody. You know, if Roger's like, "Hey, you want to hit around?" He'll do it. it. It doesn't matter who it is. He'll hit around with with the top players. And I think for the longest time, one of the John's biggest problems is that that kind of infected him in his matches, where you didn't see a kind of any kind of grit, you know, any kind of fire. Uh, he just if things weren't working out. You know, he was a bit down in matches, but whatever. You know, like, you never felt like he was really fighting. It kind of reminds me of the way that Kevin Anderson has kind of turned his his career around. Uh, more positivity, more fight, more fire. And I wonder if John's taken a, a page out of his playbook because that's what I saw in this tournament is John being aggressive. John showing emotion. John pumping himself up. John getting fired up. Just fiery and 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 aggressive, and I mean not just aggressive in his play, but aggressive in general. I mean throwing looks across the net, pumping you know fist pumps, looking across the net at the guy, sending a message. I mean this is the kind of thing that John's never really shown before, and I can honestly say I feel like that is one of the biggest differences why he won this tournament because his change in demeanor showed me that this is a guy that wanted to win this tournament. He wanted to win. He wanted to win the final. He went into every match 
doing everything he could to win, but he showed how much grit and fire that he had. And I wish he would have done that throughout his career and instead just kind of was like, eh, whatever, things not working out in this match and just kind of let it die. To me, that's the biggest change for me with John. I mean, aggressive is fine in play, but aggressive in his demeanor, that shows, that tells the guy across the net something that isn't just uh, shown in John's play. Yeah, and I'd like to know exactly what, you know, what he's been doing lately, you know, the last tournament with the mental coach. Could could it be, all right, you don't really have any repeat winners of Master Series titles in the draw. You've got Del Potro with one and Zverev with two and Federer lost. You've got nobody else there because you got to remember, earlier this year, he's been doing terrible. Two, two of his previous three events, he failed to convert on match point. Uh-huh. He lost in the P- uh, PNB Barrapas Open to uh, Gilmo Fis after having match point. And in the second round of Delray Beach, um, he had three match points against Peter Go- Gojo. This is Peter Gojo. That's what he's going to be called. Um, against Gojo uh, as well. So, I mean, that's somebody who earlier in the year, that's, I mean, we're talking, it's, it, Monfils is one thing. He's a better player. But having three match points against uh, Peter Gojo, um, you know, that tells you that something's wrong there. So I'd like to know exactly what he did this tournament, whether it was seeing the draw open up uh, for first time, you know, ATP master slam winners, uh, ATP master winners, uh, potentially uh, after Federer got bounced and whatnot, or if he's been working on something else that now he can, you know, if he's talking to somebody or doing something, I, I'd like to know because I like him to keep doing it. <laughs> that's what's, that's what I'm interested. That's what's, uh, you know, I say confusing, but piquing my interest because um, he only, won two 12 level matches all year mm-hmm. that's yeah. it yeah. so you're talking from someone who was two and six on the year to winning the Masters series and in convincing fashion not got lucky with some early exits like and, and some you know walkovers or anything like that i mean he beat good people i mean he had two two top five wins in the tournament alone and he only had eight in his career before then so he's now got 10 top five opponent wins and two of them came from this tournament. So, I mean, that tells you that something has changed and I just don't know what it is yet, but I hope he keeps it up. I, I think also it's... side note, but not to interrupt you, but side note, he is the oldest ATP world tour masters, 1000 champion in history for first timer. Oh yeah. Yeah. I believe it. <laughs> 32, almost 33. 30. Yep. 32. When your first ATP master series thousand event, which I thought it was, um, what's his name from like Oh six, Yvonne something. Oh, uh, not really sure. Um, the one who was coaching, he's coaching somebody else right now, but he was like the odd ball guy. And he won like that one. And I'm like, how, where the heck did he come from? It's like Montreal or something. I thought he was older than Isner. Hmm. So I'm definitely mistaken. All right. Well, you know, I think the two things to me that jump out, I think that – I think one of his coaches probably just said, John, show me that you want something. Show me you want it. I mean, are you out here to win or are you just out here to play well? You know, I think that's one thing. Because you got to – like sometimes it's about showing me how much you actually want. Do you want to win this title? Then show me something. Don't just go out there and hit some serves and then shake your head when things don't go right or things aren't going your way and just like, oh, it's, you know, fate's against me. 
you know, just not yeah. my day. Uh, like, show me that you want it because otherwise, what are you doing out there? So I think that's number one. I think number two, simplifying strategy. All right. Be aggressive on return. Just take a rip. If it, if it flies out, fine. But just, you know, on return, go for it. Let's see what happens. And sometimes simplifying strategy is actually better. Um, so what did Alexander do to lose? Uh, Michael said point by point play lacking, and I agree. But I think there's one particular thing that he did not do. And they commented in the match, all almost all, almost all match, but definitely in the second and third set. Uh, Zverev is getting too predictable in his play and specifically in his backhand. His backhand is going cross court all the time, cross court. He never hits it down the line. Now, maybe he just wasn't feeling it that day, or maybe he was afraid to going, of going to the forehand side of Isner. But the problem was when, even when he would stretch John to his backhand side and John would hit it back, you know, cross court to Isner's backhand, instead of Isner taking it down the line, like he should have. He would just hit it. You back mean Zverev take it down the line? Like I'm sorry. Yeah, Zverev hitting it down the line. Zverev would hit it back cross court, and then John would run around the backhand and rip a forehand. So instead of learning from that and saying, "Okay, I'm going to adjust. I'm going to go down the line and, and just start running John around and tiring him being, out," he's pulling in the doll and being stubborn. He was being <laughs> stubborn, and that is the problem. That to me is the key reason why Zverev lost this match because he was getting too predictable in his play. And and sometimes it's nice to exploit a weakness, but sometimes it also that attempt to exploit the weakness in turn becomes a weakness for yourself. And yeah, I think he that's, was, too, he was yeah. too confident that he was going to break down Isner's backhand, mm-hmm. or eventually it was going to break down itself, and then those were going to turn into winners instead of taking the the easy open winner when you had it. When when you had it, I, he wasn't doing it like you said. Yep. I can I can see that playing out, and that's what. Frustrates me when the doll plays. Um, the doll plays Federer. Well, before it didn't really make a difference because you always beat him that way. But when the doll plays like Djokovic, and it's like, yeah, you can't just keep hitting that forehand cross court unless it's a good deep shot. You got to go up the line some. And you know how many times did we complain over and over when Djokovic was beating him? Go up the line. The time, go up the, the line. Thing. So yep. taking that forehand so. up the line, it stretches him out, and it, it gets uh, a weak reply if not an outright winner. Um, so outlook for both moving forward. Uh, Michael said no big changes. Uh, might push Instant to a good year, but this will be his crowning achievement. Yeah, I, you know, I think John should just take this and see what's worked in this this tournament. Uh, what he's what's worked mentally and his outlook uh, and positivity, and also say, okay, this is what I did with my game and it worked out pretty well. I need to try to do this this kind of you know game plan more often. Because it's going to elicit the best results. Uh, do I think John's going to suddenly go in and win a Grand Slam? No, I don't necessarily think so. I'm not saying it can't happen, but probably not. However, it's this has given him renewed confidence. Now, as for Zverev, a uh, great run, but he definitely needs to look at the game tape and see where he went wrong strategy-wise. Because there's a strategy that's really his biggest problem in this match. It wasn't anything in particular beyond just his his stubbornness to change his game plan and adjust to the things that John was doing because he just kept doing the same things over and over instead of seeing, okay, John is expecting me to go cross court. I'm not going to take this down the line. And that could have, or would have changed, I think the entire match. So that's, I think the outlook. And I agree. Um, the, 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 
you know, you'll look at it from, you know, it's very standpoint. The way I would look at it is, is that, yeah, it stings. You learn from the loss, but there's so much to be happy about with the tournament and who he beat to get there. And, you know, you get to hand it to your, you know, compatriot, compatriot is not the right word, but your, uh, you know, a uh, competitor who, you know, went out there and you know, he clearly just had a better game plan, maybe won a little bit more, but for who he beat to get there, um, it's I almost, you know, the, the two master series, I would rank this loss higher than the one master series that he won. I can't remember. It was a really lackluster. He didn't really beat people. No, he beat like one person of note. And it might have been Federer. I'm not really sure. I don't, I don't remember. It's hazy. But the fact is that that he faced formidable people all through the tournament in this draw. Well, not all through, but for the most part, through most of it. You know, in in Crino Busta and you know Curios and um, whoever else it was that he beat, that they were all good people, and that's something he needs to to be happy about because he's always struggled when he's beaten somebody much better in ranking. It's like the, the Nadal effect, where you know whoever beats Nadal at one tournament like loses in the first round of the next one or something like that. He has that tendency once he beats a good player. And he, and he faces an inferior foe the next one. He plays down their level and loses. You, you know what I'm saying? You yep. understand that, Mike? Yep, definitely. That's that's kind of what, you know, he, I, I've noticed with him. And this tournament, you know, yeah, he lost in the final, but he beat a lot of a lot of people and, you know, and in, in, in one in convincing fashion in a few of them, you know. They were close. Yeah, Chorch and Curious were 6-4, but, you know, they were good, solid wins right in a row. Yep. All right, so let's move on to the women here. Um, uh, WTA, notable matches. So Yelena Ostapenko, she took out Petra Kvitova, 7-6-6-3. Now, Petra Kvitova is, you know, she's still, I think, a little bit on her way back, but uh, definitely, you know, a Grand Slam champion. Um, well, maybe, you know, arguably, I think, you know, one of the greats, I think, because she's won, I think, two or three Grand Slams uh, in her career. I think she's won two Wimbledon titles. She may not have won any others. But uh, obviously a big win there. Ostapenko also taking out uh, Alina Svitolina, uh, 7-6-7-6. I, I picked uh, Svitolina to win the tournament. So uh, and that was, I believe, in the semis. So uh, big, big wins there by Ostapenko. Yafan Wang uh, making a route of 16 run, uh, had Kerber on the ropes. I watched that match. She really should have won it, honestly, but, but she ran out of gas. Uh, it was just too much for her towards the end and she just she was running on fumes and victoria azarenka showing she has a lot left in the tank she took out mm-hmm. madison keys uh sevastova uh radvanska and pliskova on her way to a semifinal loss so you know a really great run for victoria considering she's barely played any tennis in a while um and of course daniel collins making a semifinal run. She defeated Venus Williams. She's a good mover, has a solid game plan built on placement and spin, especially on the forehand wing. Um, you know, she was a two-time, uh, I believe she was a two-time national champ uh, in, I think at Stanford, if I'm not mistaken. So she just recently joined the tour, I think. Uh, not that long ago. Maybe last year, I believe, was her first year on tour. So, yeah, great, I think great stuff. So, but you yeah. know, you know me in the WTA. I don't know what I'm talking about. Happening. Yeah. So anyway, good stuff for there <laughs> for the notable matches. You know, Ostapenko had some big wins. Wang uh, just came out of nowhere to have a good run. 
Azarank is showing a lot uh, of guts and uh, a lot of game. And Collins, you know, she's showing that she's young and she's she's a solid uh, player. And she took out Venus. That's no mean mean task, even at uh, her age. Uh, all right, so let's get to the final talk. How did they get there? So Ostapenko, she took, uh, uh, had a buy, took out uh, Tameo Babos, uh, uh, took out uh, Beatrice Haddad Maya in the next round, Petra Kvitova, uh, and then Alina Svitolina in the, the quarters, and Daniel Collins in the semis. Stevens, however, took out or had a buy, took out Aija Tablanovic, Monica Nicolescu, Garbine Migarutha, Angelique Kerber, and Victoria Azarenka. Tell you what, those final three, Muguruza, Kerber, Azarenka, that is one one heck of That's a, a gauntlet. Gauntlet right there. Tell you what. And, the and fact- then Ostapenko. I mean, Muguruza, Kerber, Ostapenko, you know, your more recent Grand Slam winners. Yeah. And she took out all three. Pretty And Azarenka, uh, I don't remember if Azarenka even has a major, to be honest. Boy, Eric, you are pretty bad. She has two. She won in 2012 and 13. Uh, yeah, so five and six, six and seven years ago, you got to, you know, give me a little bit of oh, five sorry. and six years ago. So, um, but, so, yeah, so four Grand Slam winners in a row, um, and she takes them all out. So that's definitely, it's like Zverev. You, that, you need to take more from those three wins than you do the final. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, Sloane Stevens defeats Yelena Ostapenko 7-6-6-1. Uh, I watched this match and it was a nip and tuck in that first set. I'll tell you, it was not easy. Uh, Ostapenko, I, th- I thought going into the tiebreaker that she had the edge. Uh, Stevens was a bit slow, especially early in the set. She really didn't look like she was ready for the final or physically. Maybe she was, you know, maybe the, the last few matches had taken their toll a little uh, but she definitely wasn't sharp right from the get-go, whereas Ostapenko was delivering haymakers. Um, but you know what? Stevens, she did exactly what she needed to do in that first set and and won that. Uh, she was up big. I believe she was up, if I'm not mistaken, something like 5-1 uh, in the tiebreaker. And Ostapenko got, got it back to, I think, 5-4. And then I think... Uh, that's when she ended up, I think she ended up winning it uh, 7-4. So she did make it a decent tiebreaker, but she won that. And then uh, early in this set, uh, Ostapenko won the first game. She broke to start, and then she lets uh, Sloane Stevens break back. And once she broke back, I knew it was over. I could just tell. I could just see the body language. And it was it. Was it. That's all she wrote, 6-1. She, w- she won it like a flower. Yeah, it was just it. It took all the wind out of her sails. So uh, what did Sloan do to win? Michael said, uh, steady. Don't commit too many errors and cause Ostapenko to go for too much. Uh, I agree. Uh, I think, like I said, I thought she was slow to start out. But after she got the rhythm, um, she was hitting a lot of errors too. Uh, Sloan was. I think there was tension issues with her racket, with the string, because she was making a lot of routine shots just – spraying errors. They were out by a foot, out by a few inches, um, and she just couldn't get a solid feel on the shots. But eventually, uh, I think she either just got, you just got used to it, found, you know, where her range was, or she got the, uh, she had the tension altered. 
because eventually those errors dissipated and uh, it turned into errors for Ostapenko. So, yeah. Um, I think uh, that what Mike said was perfect. It's Look, it's Sloan's game. You know, get a lot of balls back, make you beat yourself. Uh, Nadal's done that for a large portion of his career, and he's got more aggressive as the years have gone by, obviously. But, you know, for his early years, that was what Nadal did. He would wear you down physically. He would make you go for too much, and in turn, you'd be spraying errors left and right. So it's kind of what Sloan does. She's athletic. She gets to a ton of balls, and it's le- it leads to players trying to rip winners uh, constantly, and that inevitably is is what you know gets the air toll going up and gets Sloan the win. What do you think, Eric? Uh, I didn't watch it um, just because busy this weekend. You know, it being Easter weekend, I didn't really get to watch. I didn't watch anything live. Okay. I had to kind of you know, like even with the men's match, I had to watch the highlights and then after. Um, I think it's great, you know, for Sloan because we saw what happened to her after the U.S. Open. Um, just tank six kind of six like, months of nothing. I mean, she kind of like even... it's kind of like getting to the majors, getting called up from the the minor leagues, getting the majors, hitting your grand slam, your first at bat, and then just striking out ever since because you just you, you hit it, you did it in the first one, you know. So she she wins a grand slam before she ever wins a master series or any real major major tournament, um, and then doesn't know how to deal with it. I don't think she knew how to cope. I mean, it's like sudden fame sudden success you know type of deal and hopefully you know she's gotten to a place where she's hungry again because i mean how do you how do you how do you stay hungry because she's pretty young she's 25 if i'm not mistaken okay but considering serena's been winning mostly everything in the last five years and she's in her mid-30s she's pretty young besides ostapenko who kind of ostapenko muguruza okay both a little younger than her but still pretty young and and wins it and didn't seem like she was that that high it's like it's almost like someone coming out of nowhere in a way because she hadn't made the finals of a grand slam before then right i thought her and keys were both first-time finalists they were first-time finalists exactly you know and you know for keys you know who lost um, it, it, it was a quicker road back because she lost. And I think Stevens just didn't know how to cope. So, um, finally breaks through and does so like Isner does so in spectacular fashion. I mean, that's where it's again, it's like, did, was there a USTA WTA ATP cofab that we're like, all right, guys, you know, you guys going to need to get your stuff together, you know, and help out American tennis. And all of a sudden Isner and Sloan go, you got it, you know? And they both just mow through both draws and take out people that normally they wouldn't take out. You know, not that Sloan can't beat the four people she's beaten, but she's never done that before. She's never beaten four Grand Slam champions in a row, you know. So it's kind of like surprising, but it's about time and just needs to to keep the momentum. That's it. It's momentum's a big thing in tennis. You know, we we see it between Djokovic and Nadal, you know. Nadal and Federer, you know, it, it plays. You you have confidence. You know, you need to keep that momentum, keep that confidence going. Otherwise, you know, you are at risk of being, you know, pushed aside and outclassed and outmaneuvered by your opponents because that whole, you know, blood in the water deal is is a real thing. You know, you've got to you show a weakness, people are going to pounce on it. I mean, it, it's it's a you know pretty cutthroat, you know, world out there in tennis. So any any little sliver. 
that someone can do to get an advantage, they're going to take advantage. So you play and feel like you're going to win and you're invincible. That's what's going to happen. You're going to win. Um, you know, we've seen it right now with Djokovic. Djokovic uncertain of himself and is losing, you know, yeah, the injury and coming back and whatnot. But, you know, it's different. You see Nazarenka who's coming back and storming back, you know. She's confident. She knows she can win. You know, it's not her fault she's been off the tour and so on and so forth. You know, she wants it. And Djokovic is in the opposite, where he's just unsure of himself, you know, and, you know, dealing with coaching issues and whatnot, distractions. So people aren't afraid. He's yeah. not invincible like people thought he was and where he was, but he's not that way anymore. So um, I think Sloan needs to not bask in the limelight like she did after she won the U.S. Open. You know, oh, it's great. It's a title. But you need to go, okay, on to the next one. Not, oh, great, I won. You know, I've got lots of money again and I'm happy and, you know, don't really care. Like, if she wants to become a multiple Grand Slam winner, she can't expect to happen what happened at the U.S. Open last year. You know, where we had two first-time finalists, that's not probably going to happen again. So she needs to, you know, keep this up, keep this mentality up, and she needs to go, you know, for the throat. Is she play her best? No, but she needs to play every tournament like she wants to win, like she needs to win. Not, oh, okay, it's it's clay. It's time for the you know U.S. to wilt and nobody do anything of any note because it's a clay and it's a worse service. You know, she needs to 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 play like she's going to win, and you never know what can happen. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. And uh, as for um. What did know, what, what did Ospinko do to lose? Uh, Michael said not patient enough. I totally agree. I, I think that she she was playing her game fine, and then Sloan shored up the errors, and after that, Ostapenko started to get impatient and nervous, and it felt like everything was coming back, and that's when the errors started to pile up. I think Michael said eight, uh, forty-eight errors, I believe, in the match for Ostapenko. That's not going to win you. The, the title sorry yeah um can't do that's that. that that that's that the, the good and the bad of of crushing every ball like she was doing at the french open and she won because she was just they were just landing in that's gonna that's what happens when they're not landing in and they go out and then you just lopside that second set and it's over before you know it yep uh, I look for both moving forward. I think it's a great result. Uh, like I said, great result for Ostapenko leading to, to the French Open. Stevens hopefully rides this success to higher things. I agree. I think Ostapenko just needs to to look at what she did in this match and see where she can make improvements. And I think that Stevens needs to realize that uh, if she wants to win these things, she can't she can't give you know six month. Six months between tournament wins if if she wants to do this yeah. for a long time because that's not going to get you enough results to stick in the game and do something. And it needs to not be acceptable, like I said. That was right. the word I was looking for. Yeah. It, it, does, it can't be acceptable to win a tournament every six months and be happy about it. If you want to be the best, you got to win all the time. You yeah. know, Serena Williams isn't the best because she plays four tournaments a year and they're all the Grand Slams, and she wins them. No, she wins a lot throughout the year. She just happens to also win the Grand Slams a lot of the time as well, up until, you know, her pregnancy and everything. Um, that's what you need to do. You need to take a page out of her book, and hopefully she does. So we'll see. All right. Moving on to set three. So here we go. Uh, talking points. So this is our main topic for 
uh, the week, uh, what to make of the split of Andre Agassi and Novak Djokovic. So we said at the beginning of the recording here that we would talk more about this and we're going to get into it. So the partnership only lasted five tournaments, right? So they started out at the French Open and then they went to Wimbledon. After that, Djokovic was out of the game until Australia. And then, of course, he played Indian Wells and then Miami. That's it. So five tournaments and this part, this partnership is over. So injuries obviously played a significant part in their short collaboration. You can't get around the injuries and everything. They were there and they were significant enough to put Djokovic off the tour for quite some time. Now, Andre wasn't paid for his services. So he, you know, this was on his own time. Andre wasn't paid a thing. He didn't want anything. So he was doing this basically pro bono. Um, so here's here's the that's just a little kind of a background, but I did want to talk about the quote because the quote that Andre gave after they split is pretty revealing, and so we'll break it down. So here's Andre's quote: "With only the best in, of a, with only the best intentions, I try to help Novak. We far too often found ourselves agreeing to disagree." Uh, so let's break down the quote, Eric. It's far more telling than most, I think, of the vanilla uh, parting quotes between coach and pupil. Most of the time it's just like, oh, you know, it was time for us to split. We'd achieved uh, everything that we could achieve, <clears throat> blah, blah, blah. And regardless of, of whether things ended good or bad on uh, in terms of terms, uh, they generally – it's a very PR friendly quote. It, it's never – it's they meant to not ruffle feathers and – uh, make sure that both the coach and the player look the best in terms of optics. But this is a quote, Eric, that's a little different. So what did you think about this quote? Um, it, it wasn't surprising to hear. I mean, we're talking about Andre Agassi, as far as I can recall, has never coached somebody before. No, this is his first time. So, I mean, you're talking it's, – it's like football, all right? Just because, you know, Peyton Manning, all right, that's a bad one because Peyton Manning is probably a great coach. But just because you're a great athlete doesn't make you a great coach. Remember that old saying where those who can do something and those who can't teach, I can't remember, it goes something along that lines. You know, it doesn't mean everybody who uh, is really great at what they do would be good at teaching other people. And I'm not saying that Agassi would be a bad coach, but it's not like it's even Lendl who's, you know, even Lendl goes in now, he, he takes what he's learned from past coaching other people and what's worked and what hasn't worked. Like, you know, and we're talking Andre's first foray isn't some 200 ranked American who needs a little help under his wing. We're talking about a 12 time grand slam champion who just cleared house mm-hmm. with his team. Basically, you know, there's that's, that is like just jumping into the belly of the beast and swinging swords. That's really what's what, what I thought was happening from the get-go. Um, it surprised me that it lasted this long. I didn't think it was going to. Okay. Because I guess he didn't seem like he would be one that would mince words, not like some coaches do. You don't want to ruffle the feathers too much and tip-tap. I mean, Agassi is is Agassi, and, and the life events he's gone through, and as much as I want to you know, tip my hat to Djokovic's previous um, coaches, and he, he did have a Grand Slam champion coach already um, that helped him to some, but Boris Becker is not, you know – the highest echelon of the Grand Slam champions, uh, notwithstanding, I just, I, I kind of expected this. Okay. Um, but also, I don't think that means they bickered all the time. He only played five tournaments. It's not like while his rehab was going, they were probably in constant communication all the time. I just think they have, you know, 
had different views on what to do. Um, and, you know, maybe if Djokovic wasn't a 12 time Grand Slam winner, probably would have been maybe better at receiving criticism because I'm sure I can see Agassi in my head. I can just see him being like um, uh, Brad Gilbert, being like Brad Gilbert, pulling a page out of Brad's book and just telling him how it is and Djokovic not liking it. That's, in my opinion, probably what happened. I might be wrong, but I just, I can see that. And I can see everybody. Baby, not say babying Djokovic, but but talking to Djokovic in a certain way, and Agassi comes in and is like, "No, you suck right now. You need to hit the ball sooner." Like his dad always said to him, something like that. And it just that's why the agreeing to disagree thing probably came about because it probably was. They're probably arguing over tactics and tactics and stuff, um, and that that can be what happens. Not saying Agassi is a bad coach or a good coach, but. I'd be interested to find out really what happened. I just don't think we will. All right. So, uh, Ramilo Armenulic, or Armenulic, <clears throat> I don't know how it is. Anyway, Serbian Davis Cup captain came out and said that Andre did nothing for Novak, that he didn't know how to help him, and that Novak did more for Agassi by making him a coach than anything Andre did as a coach. So, uh, you know, for me, this, this, I mean, could this be true? It's possible, but I also can see this just being, you know, the Serbian Davis Cup captain seeing this quote and wanting to come out in defense of yeah. of Novak. Yeah, I so I don't see that as necessarily being the truth. My take is that Andre has some very specific ideas on strategy and possibly even training and that Novak ultimately wasn't willing to buy into those training slash strategy ideas. Now, you're right, Eric. Every great player isn't necessarily going to be a great coach. But – to me, Andre always comes across as pretty self-aware guy. He knows his faults. He knows um, he knows where his faults lay as a player and as a person. Uh, he's a very, I think, a very introspective person. So someone like that to me is someone who also understands what they can get across to another player and help them and what they can't. And uh, – Am I saying that that necessarily means that Andre will be a great coach? Still, I don't know. You know, but either a they didn't have enough time together to make this worth it, or Andre did everything he could, but Novak wasn't willing. Now there are two sides to every story, right? But we don't have Novak's other side. He hasn't said anything, as far as I know. So all we can go off of right now is this quote. So let's look at it with only the best intentions. I tried to help Novak. What's that say? That says that Andre had ideas. There are very specific things that I think he wanted Novak to do to turn his game around, turn his career around, because obviously things have not been going well, and that Novak wasn't willing to buy into it. We far too often found ourselves agreeing to disagree. So basically, Andre's like, hey, look, I think you need to do this. I think we need to change up your training sessions. I think we need to try this. And Novak's saying something to the effect of, I see what you're saying, but I just don't agree with what you're saying. And so they're agreeing to disagree. So I think Andre had some things he wanted to do with Novak and Novak just in the end, not willing to actually employ those changes. Um, I still contend it's not just injuries though. I think there was a quote by Djokovic, I believe last year where he said uh, there were different priorities in his life. Um, If you're going out there and you're playing, you have to be better than the 90% needed 
to be a great tennis player. 90% drive to be out there is not going to win you a master's title and it's not going to win you a grand slam title. I just don't think that on or that uh, Novak is is really fully invested in a way he was even just a couple of years ago. It's not the same, I think the same drive. I think he likes to be out there. I think he wants to be out there, but it's not the all-consuming obsession and need to be great that was there before. Now, he can get back there. I just don't know that he ever will. Uh, Michael's thoughts are, I think Novak just just not prepared to do the things Andre wanted and since he's not healthy. I think his thoughts were only about getting back on court. Too many moving parts for this ultimately to work. So, yeah. Will we ever really know, Eric? I think you're right. I don't think we'll ever fully know what actually happened, the nuts and bolts of this partnership and what failed. But um, at least on Andre's part, it sounds like he tried to do his best to get some changes made and to employ things he wanted uh, Novak to do. Just in the end, I don't think Novak and his team were willing to buy it. Plus, you have the, the hug father in there, uh, master of hugs. Uh, and so we don't know yeah. you know, all that because that, that sounds to me like that's been a real issue too with, with anybody trying to come on or stay on that team. So. Yeah, yeah. His uh, what what is what is he again? He's like uh, he's a spiritual guru. Yeah, yeah, spiritual guru. He's a master yeah. of hugs. He's like he's like Olaf from Frozen. He likes oh, warm yeah. hugs. Just loves warm hugs. Yeah. So yeah, just call him Olaf. Uh, all right. So Eric, any other final thoughts there, or do you want to move on to final? Uh, let's move on to to set four. I mean, I, I've said said quite a bit, so I'd okay. probably be stretching this. Right. We'll say something else. So, final thoughts. Uh, <laughs> let's do your final thoughts on Miami. Um, I'll start out. Uh, a great week, I think, with two winners that I would honestly never have predicted to come through and win. Uh, Sloan's won a slam, but she hasn't done anything for six months and just horrible results leading into Miami. So I didn't think she was going to do anything. She more or less pulled another U.S. Open, just kind of coming out of nowhere, finding her form, and uh, went on to win. Isner, however, was the biggest surprise for me. Uh, he showed a fire, a grit, a level of toughness that I've never seen out of him before. And like I said earlier, I, I wonder what his career at this point might have looked like had he employed those qualities and displayed them earlier in his career. Just just showing how much he wants something and started trying to be friendly to everybody all the time. Uh, and I think that at least in part we're seeing you know, the results uh, from that fire, grit, and determination. So uh, congrats to both winners and uh, congrats to the runner-ups for making it that far. And it just uh, it'll be exciting to get onto the clay. Okay. So I'm going to read Michael's before I get into my own. Um, so Mikey said that it's an amazing ending to an amazing tournament. Uh, it was suitable that we had multiple amazing finals. I'm going to have to yell at him for the, the amazings he keeps putting in here. Uh, multiple amazing finals across the different events. Uh, ob- obviously also amazing in that Americans swept all the tournament finals. As we see the tournament move from Crandon Park and complete its journey, uh, we see the next one starting uh, in Miami at the Hard Rock Stadium there. Uh, with what we've already seen to be an amazing venue. Uh, we can only hope that these changes uh, that Miami uh, will now become the tournament that everyone thought it should be and be a true competition for Nina Wells, like I was stating. Uh, for the finalists, Coco and Barty, um, hopefully a momentum push for them for the rest of the season. For the Bryan brothers, hopefully we'll see them go into another tear for the rest of the season and have a storybook run again. 
Chrislyn Stevens. Uh, you can only hope that we don't see her fault uh, fault her like uh, she did after winning the U.S. Open, uh, and that she continue her form through the rest of the season and show us her true potential. And then there's John Isner, Big Johnny, if you will. We have seen John go on spurts uh, where he is almost unbreakable on a serve, and we've seen we've just never uh, been able to see him truly put it together. And some of the biggest events in his career. I hope uh, that this can push John to have the best year of his career and what could be the twilight of his career at the age of 32. So besides the eight amazings, I do say that that's uh, similar in my respects. Um, it was nice to have an American. Um, well, the Bryan brothers are both American. Sloan and John, American win. And then uh, a Coco American and Barty uh, being Australian uh, winning the women's side. It was nice to have. It's Americans know, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It doesn't happen very often. I mean, um, for an American man to win a master series, you have to go back to Roddick, I think. Roddick. I believe was so. Was the last to win a master series. Yep. Maybe yep. Fish. Oh. Fish might have won one in the mid 2000s, like 2005, 2006. I know he won something here or there. I think he was the last one. But you're talking 10 plus years. Uh, basically around that around that uh, time frame uh, for an American man to win a master series event. Um, and especially at um, at Miami, which, you know, in the early um, early 90s, I mean, that was ruled nothing but Americans. So uh, you, you really, you know, got to got to hand it to us. We went four for four uh, on that event. Now, particularly, like I've said before, the Bryan brothers hope they keep up the momentum Johnny Sloan need to do the same thing. Not, you know, John, it's going to be a little more difficult. John's, this is the biggest win of John's career. Um, Sloan won the U.S. Open. So this is a great win, but it's not impacting her life like right now it's impacting Johnny's, you know. So hopefully this makes him hungry is what I want. Uh, I hope that makes him hungry and that, you know, he doesn't just want to be a Master Series winner. You know, he wants to go on and win a slam. Um, Andy Roddick in 2010 is the last uh, Master Series champion that we had, and it also wasn't Miami. Um, so eight years in between American champions and the Master Series, um, which is not surprising. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's really about it. it. It was a great week. We couldn't have asked for a better ending uh, for the Americans. Um, for me and you personally, Nadal didn't play. We couldn't ask for a better ending because Federer lost early. Uh, Mikey's not going to want to hear that on the playback, but you know, I'm looking at it from all angles. It was basically the best tournament we could have asked for for us, Mike. Besides Feder losing in the first round, maybe. Um, otherwise, it went you know as good as it could have. So on to the clay swing. Um, now the clay swing is starting up here uh, in the near future. We've got a couple of smaller tournaments going on right now, uh, but in two weeks, the Rolex Monte Carlo Masters. Uh, starts from the 15th to the 22nd. Uh, we will see uh, a bunch in play. We know Federer already is not going to be playing there. Um, no word yet on Djokovic, in my opinion, probably will play, but uh, we'll see. Uh, and then we start the clay swing. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Um, so looking forward to all that. Super excited. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we we will be taking, um, I think, uh, what, a, a week or two off. When does uh, Monte Carlo start, Eric? Uh, two weeks. Two weeks from now. Uh, yeah. All right. Yep. So so uh, we'll be taking a week off, everybody. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks for our Monte Carlo 
uh, preview. So look forward to that. But uh, in the meantime, uh, just watch for the results and uh, just be excited that we got some clay court tennis coming up. So until next time, you know, enjoy the tennis world and all the news coming out. Yeah, because uh, for anybody who's going to be listening to this, Davis Cup quarterfinals are right. uh, on the 6th to the 8th. So we'll go a little bit over that too when the Masters. I mean, I know it'll be well done by then, but Mikey really loves Davis Cup, follows it, so he'll have some input. Um, other than that, there's only a couple of little 250 slams, so not much at all heading in. Um, we've got the um, Men's Clay Court Championship in Houston uh, that Hyun Chung had to pull out of, and then the Grand Prix Hassan, which is in Morocco. Uh, little 250 tournaments that that you know we'll be able to watch from the 9th to the 15th if uh, you so choose to. All right, all right. We'll see everybody next time. Have a good one. Uh, thanks for joining the us on the Tennis Attic podcast. See you later. See you later, guys. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Addict podcast by Freaking Geeks Media. Be sure to visit freakinggeeks.com as well as our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash freakinggeeks for more great content. Also, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really helps. If you would like to write into the podcast and share your thoughts and ask questions, you can do so by sending your email to tennisaddictpodcast at gmail.com. You can contact Michael on Twitter using at Michael underscore Lanik or at Freak Geeks. Intro music for this episode is Danger Storm by Kevin McLeod, which can be found at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Outro music is Nowhere Land by Kevin McLeod, which can be found at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. You can also find the attribution in the episode description as well.